0: Before we get started uh, with uh, my sermon, I wanted to address some things going on in the country right now. It seems that our country goes from one crisis to the next, and this is a sign that we are experiencing the slow but constant wrath of God, and I spoke to this truth, this spiritual dynamic extensively about a year ago in a sermon called One Nation Under Wrath, and you can listen to that sermon on my website, davidroads.org. There's a lot that can be said about the death of George Floyd and the social reaction to it. So much can and should be said, and yet I find myself personally at a loss for words because I'm so disgusted by all of it, it's hard to really know how to begin talking about it. You know, for the record, let it just be known that as Christians, we are For the dignity and the sanctity of human life, we are against racial discrimination, we are against instruments of the state abusing and unrighteously killing people, we are against rioting and against looting, we are for allowing our system of justice to work through these issues, and we desire to see justice prevail not only in eternity, which we know will happen, but also here on earth. You know, I hope that these positional statements that I just made are obvious. You know, it should be uh, no shock that we would believe such things to be true. But what is less obvious, in my opinion, and what needs to be said, whether or not anyone of significance listens, is how to move forward from here. The problem, and the way I see it is, Uh, This is very much like if you have a problem, a medical issue, and you go to the doctor, he's going to do two things. He's going to make a diagnosis, and then he's going to have a prescription or a solution, maybe a surgery, something like that. But there's always a a diagnosis and then a solution. And the problem, the diagnosis, is that our nation has had a long history of racial violence. In the late 1800s, we had government-allowed lynched mobs, That began and continued for some time in some areas. And uh, then shortly after that, you had a series of white-on-black race riots. The Atlanta riots of 1906, the East St. Louis riot of 1917, the Omaha and Chicago riots of 1919, the Tulsa riots of 1921. All of those were white-on-black race riots. More recently, we've had uh, largely black riots uh, that largely have been a reaction to either police brutality or perceived police brutality or crimes against African Americans or crimes against African American supporters, uh, such as the Newark riots of 1967. In 1968, you had riots across the country uh, uh, precipitated by the murder of Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy. Um, You had the Miami riots of 1980. 1992, the Los Angeles riots after the Rodney King Incident, Uh, the Cincinnati riots of 2001. We happen to live in Cincinnati at the time. Um, And there have been, since 1935, uh, documented more than 100 instances of mass racial violence in the United States, and the vast majority of these were precipitated by a police incident. Whether it's actual police brutality or perceived police brutality, Uh, the vast majority of those uh, precipitated the uh, racial violence, uh, the mass racial violence that we've seen. So, you know, that's the problem. It's a very multifaceted problem. Uh, What's the solution? Well, there is a solution, and I think it's disingenuous for us as believers in Jesus to say, well, the solution is Jesus. Okay, yeah, sure. If everybody in the world became a spirit-filled Christian, we wouldn't have this problem. But let's be real, okay? Um, There's only one place right now where everybody is a spiritual Christian, and that's heaven. We live on earth. And uh, that isn't to say that there's not a solution, because there is a solution to these problems in our country, here on earth. There is a solution, but the real question should not be, what is the solution? But rather, where can the solution be found? And I believe that the, the solution to this is only going to happen when, collectively, the vast majority of people, white, black, and otherwise, come to a common agreement, a common understanding of how we are to behave and how we are to act toward one another and, and uh, that type of thing. And, and the, that solution, where everyone comes to that same understanding, can only be found when we have leaders in our country who have the moral authority to begin a series of nationwide public conversations on the issues. Let me say that again. We need leaders who have the moral authority to begin a series of nationwide public conversations on the issues. You see in our country's history we usually have had leaders who either were a part of the problem or who lacked the moral authority and the courage to address the issues in a way that would find common ground among people of every ethnicity and every socioeconomic background. Rarely in our country's history have we had the proper leaders who've taken the proper steps to actually solve these multifaceted problems, and I believe we don't have those leaders now. And if they do exist, they're either not stepping up to the plate or they're not being listened to. And even if we have such a leader that would arise who would call for a series of nationwide public conversations on these issues, our culture right now is so toxic with animosity toward others and an unwillingness to listen and learn from others that I don't believe that such a public conversation and search for solutions would even be effective. And so where does that leave us? That leaves us exactly where we are, and unfortunately... I could be wrong, but I I think that this incident will likely go the way of similar incidents in the past where there's a real or perceived injustice that's committed and then people rage against it and then the emotional climate cools down to a low boil until the next event repeats the cycle and hopefully society at that point doesn't explode. But that's what happens. When a nation has forgotten... God. When a nation has pushed God to the side, when a nation does not fear God, which is the very first step in knowing Him, does not respect and honor God, when a nation of people decide that they can just do whatever they want and uh, who cares about what God might think, when it's that type of attitude, that's, we, we ultimately end up in situations like the ones that we see today. You see, God's wrath on an individual or God's wrath on a country always runs its full course unless the recipient of that wrath, those affected by it, turn away from their sin and come to God for mercy. In the meantime, while we're waiting for either God's wrath to run its full course on our country and ultimately destroy our country, which is the end result, or for God to cut short His wrath and have mercy because people have turned back to Him, while we're waiting for either one of those two outcomes, it is the the responsibility of us believers in Christ to do two things. Number one, to remain faithful to God in the midst of this wrath. And secondly, to intercede on behalf of others. That's our call right now that's what we're to do right now i certainly am not in any type of position of authority for anyone other than maybe those that are listening in this room or on the video would hear me we need leaders but again when you go back and you study scripture one of the clear indications that a nation or a people are under the wrath of god is that they don't have those leaders and so we need to pray for those people to rise up and for the toxic culture to be able to calm down and for cooler heads to prevail and for us to begin listening to them and listening to one another. I'd ask that we join together in prayer for our nation at this time. Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, you'd grant us the wisdom to know what to say as Christians when we're asked about these things and and when to keep our mouths shut. And when to just pray and when to do as uh, the New Testament commands us to do and to live quiet lives full of godliness and truth, sharing the gospel with people when we have the opportunity. And Father, I pray for all of those in authority. We don't have kings in this country, but we do have those who are in authority. And so I do pray for our president, I pray for our congressional leaders, for our uh, leaders in the justice system. And Father, for those that uh, are down on the state level and the local level. Father, I pray that you grant them wisdom and help them to become the types of leaders that all different types of people can listen to and respect and follow. And Father, we do pray for justice in this situation that has uh, begun to have flare-ups all throughout the country. We pray, Lord, that uh, your will would be accomplished, whatever that is. And uh, Father, that we would truly be able to honor you with our words, with our actions, with our prayers even. So Father, thank you for our church. Thank you for allowing us to, the very best we can, be salt and light in our community, and give us the opportunity, Father, at at your uh, conveyance, at your will, to be able to speak in a larger forum to these matters. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever felt stuck in life? where there, nothing's happening, sort of like the Truman Show, if you ever watched that movie, everything over and over, day after day, everything is exactly the same, pretty much the same thing, day after day, you're just sort of stuck. And even the word stuck sort of sounds like it's stuck, doesn't it? It's a fun word to say, I'm just stuck. The word itself sounds like it can't break free either. Stuck in the mud, stuck in a pit. You ever felt stuck in life? You know, in the coronavirus crisis, Hasn't helped things, has it? You know, over a long time, we're stuck at home or stuck watching reruns on TV or whatever, you know. Being stuck is no fun in life. And then, you know, someone comes along and they try to cheer us up. They say, well, this is the new normal. Aren't you tired of that phrase? The new normal. You know, that phrase doesn't make any sense anyway. If something is new, by definition... It's not normal, and if everyone now is living a different way, by definition, that way that everyone is living is now normal, and by definition, it's not new, but, you know, I've noticed an interesting dynamic that a lot of people are sort of uh, content being stuck. They're content with the same old thing. Some people just sort of learn to accept it. They not only pitch their tent in a place where spiritually or emotionally they're stuck, but they build a house there. They sort of like it. They've grown accustomed to it. They think there's nothing better for them, so might as well make the best of just being stuck in this part of life. You know, and so instead of striving for the very best in life, they just sort of give up. They just sort of give in. They quit trying. They quit moving forward in life you know, as Christians. We know that that's not God's will for us. As Christians, we're always supposed to move forward. We're always supposed to strive for Christ's likeness. That means change. We're always supposed to walk according to the Spirit, following the footsteps of Jesus, however you want to phrase it. Jesus said, come, follow me, and Jesus doesn't stay stuck. He says, come, follow me. And so... Last week, we, we talked about escaping Egypt, and Egypt represents bondage to sin, slavery to sin. And we talked about escaping that, and so when you became a Christian, you know, there's still that power of sin in your life, there's still the influence of sin in your life and in the environment that you have to deal with, and, and to become free from the bondage of sin, you have to stop loving it, stop desiring it, stop setting your heart on that sin, Stop, stop seeking to consume those sinful desires and trying to fulfill those desires that can never be fulfilled. And so we learned that in order to leave the Egypt of bondage to sin, you have to do two things, the same two things that the people of Israel had to do. Number one, you have to die to your sin, and that was represented when they went through the waters, went through the waters that were standing on either side, they pass through certain death to get to life on the other side. And so you have to die spiritually. The correspondence to that is for us, like Romans six eleven says, talks about us dying to our sin, considering ourselves to be dead to sin. Jesus said, said it this way. He said, take up your cross daily. Okay, Same type of concept. And so you have to die to your sin. If you want to get unstuck, if you want to stop loving your sin, your bondage, your Egypt... The other thing you have to do is you have to consume Christ daily. By reading God's Word with a heart, to obey God, you have to consume Christ. You have to be in prayer. You have to walk with Christ and consume Him. He talked about consuming Him, eating His flesh and drinking His blood in John chapter 6. And so you have to consume Christ daily. You have to eat the lamb. And that's what Israel did at the Passover. They ate the Lamb, and that gave them the strength to begin to break free. And so once you start to break free from the bondage of sin, once you start to leave Egypt, you'll find that you've made it to the wilderness. For many people are stuck. And they never make it to the promised land. They're stuck in the wilderness. Take your Bible, if you would, and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're going to look at verses 1 through 13, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I just want these these words to speak to your heart. I'd ask you, if you found 1 Corinthians chapter 10, to stand with me, please, in honor of the reading of God's Word. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13, I'll read aloud from the New American Standard Bible that says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, With most of them God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Verse 8, Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have Come, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Father in heaven... I pray that these words would penetrate our hearts and that we would be able to become unstuck out of the wilderness in your perfect timing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now every Christian needs to break free from the bondage of sin in Egypt and every Christian who does so will find themselves in the wilderness. Going through the wilderness might seem like a punishment, but it's not. The wilderness is simply a pathway to the promised land. It's a requirement that you go through. God has a purpose for you in going through the wilderness. And the wilderness, it's not as bad as bondage in Egypt. It's not as bad as slavery to sin in Egypt. But you know what? The wilderness also isn't as good as living in the promised land. Let me just tell you right now, the promised land isn't heaven. Okay, heaven is far above the promised land. The promised land for Israel was something they experienced here on earth, and so is the promised land for you. Whether or not you get there is largely up to you. You know, if you want to make it to the promised land, you've got to go through the wilderness. And the key, again, is not to get stuck in the wilderness. You see, God never intended the wilderness to be your home. The wilderness, it is not to be a place where you dwell spiritually. The wilderness is supposed to be a temporary place. How long you stay in the wilderness, again, is largely up to you. You see, when Israel left Egypt, you know how long it took them to make it to the Promised Land, right? Everyone knows that if you're a student of Scripture. It took them 40 years. Do you know how long it should have taken them? About 40 days total. About 40 days the last third of the trip you can read about in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 2, it should have taken 11 days' journey. That's it, 11 days. But at that point, they had about another 40 years to go. Why did Israel stay so long in the wilderness? I mean, why didn't they just hurry up and make it to the Promised Land? Well, for the same reason that a lot of Christians today are stuck in their wilderness, unbelief. See, when uh, when Israel was living in the wilderness, they had to keep moving. God told them to keep on moving. Even the tabernacle of God, where the God of the universe dwelt, even that was a movable tent. Got to keep moving. This is not the final place. This is not your home. You got to keep moving. So there's something more permanent in the future. So I want to share with you a few truths about living in the wilderness. And I hope that if you're in a spiritual wilderness right now, this will be an encouragement to you. Number one, if you're in a spiritual wilderness, if you feel like you're stuck right now, please know that God has not abandoned you. He has not abandoned you. Okay, God always takes care of His people when they're in the wilderness. And even though the wilderness is not your permanent home, even though the wilderness is not the habitat for that spiritual species that we call Christian. God will supply your needs. You know, this coronavirus crisis that we've all been going through, it's taken Christians out of their natural habitat of being with one another and gathering with one another and fellowshipping and loving and caring for one another. We're out of our natural habitat or have been for some time. And so we've had to do church online instead of in person. Or we've had to do church in our car at a drive-in. That was something, wasn't it? You know, we, we've had to have printed sermon devotionals instead of experiencing sermons in person. We, if we sing songs to the Lord, we're singing songs maybe with our family, in our home. It's not quite the same thing as being with all of God's people singing together, right? But God always provides His people manna. God always provides His people bread from heaven, even when they're in the wilderness. God will even provide water to come out of a rock. He's going to sustain you if you're in the wilderness. But again, it's not to be your permanent place. And so we know that Jesus is that spiritual bread that satisfies us. We know that He is the spiritual water that quenches our thirst. And so God will provide for you in the wilderness, but, you know, his provision, like water from a rock or like bread from heaven, his provision might be a little bit unnatural, like a sermon online or sitting in a car having church. It might be a little unnatural. You know, it's not, not really not the best, but he will provide. And God's provision in the wilderness, you know, it's never as varied. It's never as tasty. It's never as abundant as what God has planned for us in the promised land. I mean, manna always tastes like manna. But there's a land that's overflowing with milk and honey. Isn't that so much better? I mean, wouldn't you get tired of it if every meal, morning, noon, and night, was rice? Just rice? It might sustain you, but boy, after a while, you'd like a steak, wouldn't you? Or something. Something a little different. Right? God's provision in the promised land is so much more bountiful, so much more overflowing. But His provision in the wilderness is meant for one thing. It's to get you through to the other side. It's to get you through to the other side. Once you make it to that spiritual dwelling place, that God has intended for you, you're going to find that there is a superabundance of God's provision for you. Now, the second thing I want to say about being in the wilderness might sound contradictory to the first, but please understand this. If you become content with the wilderness, if you decide, this wilderness that I'm in, it's all there is, and I'm just going to make my home here, then in the wilderness, you will die. You will die if you don't have the desire to keep moving forward to something better. Do you remember the old TV show, Kojak? Some of y'all are old enough to remember Kojak, right? Telly Savalas and his bald head. You know, and Kojak, he, he was... Famous for a couple of things. You know, he'd always say, who loves you, baby? Who loves you, baby? You know, I can't imitate him right. My wife is rolling her eyes. She has no idea. (laughs) Anyway, but he was always known for something else, too. He always had something in his mouth. What was it? It It was a sucker, right? He always had a little sucker, a little lollipop or something like that in his mouth. Why? He was trying to quit smoking. That's why. He always had that sucker in his mouth because the sucker was a substitute for the habit that was going to kill him. You know, removing a habit is very, very difficult. Usually you have to replace it with something else. And the same thing is true of us spiritually. You know, you escape the bondage of Egypt, you get past that desire to just lust or that desire for just pride or that desire for greed and you don't love that anymore good you've gotten out of your egypt that's good but you better substitute something else for it because if you don't you'll just find yourself empty of one thing and not replacing it with anything else you'll find yourself stuck in the wilderness you know and even though God will provide for you in the wilderness. He never intended again for that wilderness to be a permanent spiritual dwelling place for you. The reason that God brought you out of Egypt is so that He could bring you in to the promised land. Deuteronomy 6.23, listen to this. It says, He brought us out from there in order to bring us in, to give us the land which He had sworn to our fathers. But between the out and the in, there's a wilderness that you got to go through. Let me just tell you, if your faith in God is so lacking that you refuse to believe that God has something better for you here in this life, in the promised land, then you will certainly die. In the wilderness, just as sure as an entire generation of Israelites died 3,500 years ago. Third thing about the wilderness. God has a goal for your wilderness experience. Here's why you have to go through the wilderness. Because when you're in the wilderness, you're emptied of everything but Christ. They were emptied of everything but Christ. And if you've reached the point that you no longer love and set your heart on your sin, that's good. You've left Egypt, but, I, guess, but I, I bet you that there's still some baggage that you carry with you that God wants to get rid of, and that's what the wilderness is for. You know, some of us have religious baggage that we've carried with us all of our lives. By religious bag, baggage, I mean anything... That is a man-made rule that we attach to what it means to be a Christian. Some type of man-made regulation of what we think it means to be a Christian. And it doesn't take a whole lot of baggage to weigh you down. It just takes an attitude that says, Jesus plus my tradition. That's all it takes. Jesus plus all of my tradition. Whether we inherited that tradition from grandma or mama or whether we made it up ourselves, I'll tell you this, as long as your tradition is competing to rule your heart, your your tradition is competing with Jesus. And God wants to get rid of it. Jesus will not take second place to whatever man-made tradition your parents taught you or or your grandparents taught you or that your church taught you or that you just made up yourself. And I think one of the most prevalent Man-made religious beliefs in our society is this. I don't need church to be a Christian. That is a man-made religious belief, a spiritual belief that is false. Now, to be clear, I'm not talking about people who want to be in church, but temporarily refrain from attending or being involved in church because of a pandemic. I'm not talking about that. That's different. I'm not talking about people who've reached a certain stage in life to where venturing outside of the home is not even possible. I'm not talking about that either. I'm talking about an ever-growing number of people who consider themselves to be Christians and yet believe that being a faithful member of a local church is unnecessary, at worst, or optional at best. And we've got a whole lot of people in our society who have exchanged church for nothing. They make all kinds of excuses, and they blame every other person in the world for souring them against church. And again, I'm not saying that churches and church leaders and pastors sometimes don't cause real spiritual harm to people, because they do. And they should be held accountable when they do. But the problem with claiming that you want to follow Jesus, but you don't want to be a part of the church, is this. Jesus created the church. He created the church for you to be a part of it. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever smashed your thumb with a hammer? Probably most of us have. And what happened? You smash your thumb with a hammer. Your thumb gets pretty angry, doesn't it? I mean, your thumb might even turn all red in the face. And if your thumb had fingers of its own, it might have even shown you one of them. You know? I bet that your thumb was pretty angry with the rest of your body. Because all five fingers, all four other fingers and the thumb on the other hand, grabbed that hammer and your arm bent it back. And then your eyes and your brain and your central nervous system all misjudged the exact position that that hammer should fall, and then your tongue afterwards said something it usually doesn't say. And if your tongue didn't say it, you were thinking it. All because the body hurt a member of the body. You know, if your thumb was like a lot of Christians today, it would say, that's it. I'm leaving the body. I've been hurt. I'm going to leave the body. But you know what would happen to a thumb if it was amputated from the body. It wouldn't take long before that thumb dies. Testimony right there. Got nine fingers right there. (laughs) You don't need church to be a Christian? Well, You know what? I guess that's true. In the same way that a thumb doesn't need to be attached to a body to be a thumb. It's true. But what good is it? What good does a detached thumb do for a body? Not a whole lot. Likewise, a Christian that is detached from the body of Christ... That Christian cannot obey Christ's commands to love one another, to care for one another, to bear one another's burdens, to meet one another's needs. And if you can't obey Christ's commands because you've detached yourself from the body of Christ, then I would say that you don't love Christ. Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commandments. And so don't tell me that if you've detached yourself from the body of Christ that you love Jesus. Because if that's what you believe, you're lying to yourself. People that love Jesus obey Jesus. And part of obeying Jesus is keeping yourself attached to His body so that you can love one another, care for one another, bear one another's burdens, and meet one another's needs. And beyond that, A Christian that detaches himself from the body of Christ cannot receive the love and the care and the provision of the body. You're doing yourself harm when you detach yourself from the body of Christ. And yet there's a lot of Christians who have exchanged belief in the Jesus Christ that established his church for a Jesus made in their own image, a Jesus that they believe has established no church, a Jesus that they believe exists for themselves and them alone. There's a lot of thumbs out there that believe that they are the whole body of Christ themselves. And they're not. They're wrong. I don't know what kind of baggage you've carried with you out of your Egypt. Maybe it's baggage of sin. Maybe it's religious baggage. But I do know one thing. That the wilderness, that time, exists to detoxify yourself of everything but Christ. The Apostle Paul went through a wilderness experience. You see, after he came to faith in Christ, it didn't take long before God led him to an Arabian desert for three years. And I believe that God needed to rid Paul of being such a Pharisee that he was. A religious, self-righteous Pharisee. And Paul was in the wilderness for three years, and according to to Galatians, Jesus spoke to Paul in the wilderness. Paul had a divine encounter with Jesus in the wilderness. But even after Paul got out of his wilderness, what happened to Paul? Even after he was emptied of all of his self-righteous religiosity, he wasn't ready for ministry. Not at that point. Paul spent five years filling up by being involved in a church, the church at Antioch. He spent five years after he had unlearned a lot of things that he had learned, he spent five years learning the right way. You see, just because you've emptied yourself of one thing doesn't mean you're automatically filled up with something else. If Paul was ever going to become what Jesus intended, if he was ever going to fulfill God's plan for his life, he needed to be with God's people. There's no other way. You've got to be with God's people. There is no substitute for being in fellowship with God's people. There's just not. Watching sermons online from Charles Stanley or David Wilson or little old me is not a substitute for listening to a sermon with God's people. It's just not. Doing your own Bible study is not a substitute for studying God's Word with God's people. Singing a song with all of your fervor and your, your heart to God It's not a substitute with singing a song with all of your heart and fervor to God with God's people. It's different. It's completely different. You will never properly mature as a Christian unless you are with other Christians. It's simply how God made us. It's simply how God made us. You know, as a spiritual species that we call Christian, you have a natural habitat. It is the church. It is God's people. And one of the reasons that it's so important for you to be involved in church is that the church collectively is the bride of Christ. The church collectively is the recipient of the love of the eternal Son of God. Are you saying that that if I'm not there with God's people, if I'm not part of God's church, that Jesus won't love me? No, I'm not saying that at all. Jesus loves his entire bride, and every part of his bride. In the very same way that you love your spouse and every single part of your spouse. I'm sure you love your spouse's thumb. I'm sure of it. But it's just a lot more natural for you to love the entirety of your spouse, isn't it? And I'm sure that you would prefer that that thumb that belongs to your spouse would stay attached to the rest of your spouse's body. Why? Because an attached thumb is the the best for your spouse, and it's the best for the thumb, too. But if that thumb were to cut itself off from the body, I believe that Christ would still love that body. And he would still love that thumb. He would just be heartbroken for the thumb. If today you're ready to leave the wilderness of isolation and to begin to rejoin your natural habitat, God's people, I want you to know that there is a price that you will pay. There's always a price for leaving the wilderness, there's a price to pay for leaving the wilderness, and there will be a price you pay for becoming an active participant and recipient of the love of God's people. There's a price that you'll pay. The price might be that you have to get yourself up, get your family up on Sunday mornings after you've sort of gotten used to sleeping in till noon. The cost may be that you have to reorder your life. You may have to look at the thousand things that you have going on in your life, and you may have to put the church a little bit higher than your chess club, or maybe a little bit higher than this athletic activity. The church may have to have a higher priority in your life and in your family's life. You know, the issue is very simple. If you're content... Dwelling in the spiritual wilderness that God never designed to be permanent, well, then you just need to do nothing. Make no changes. Just realize that failing to dwell in the spiritual habitat that God created you for will eventually lead to spiritual atrophy and death. But if you're ready today to get unstuck from the wilderness that you're in, one of the things that can help you get unstuck the best is to rejoin God's People, it's time for church to be a priority. So, I believe that you need the fellowship and the love and the care and the concern and the burden sharing and the provision of the body of Christ that the body of Christ provides for all of its members. And I would say that the body of Christ needs you. The body of Christ needs you to bring that support, needs you to bring that love and that concern and that provision that you have. And you might say, "Oh, well, I'm just a little me. What do I have? I'm just a thumb. Listen, you're not just anything. You're an important, integral part, a critical component to what it means to be the bride of Christ. And so I hope that today you'll let this message sink in to your heart. Let this message sink in to your life And redouble your commitment to be not only with God, but to be with God's people as well.